Welcome to Insights and Indicators. I'm Jason Thomas, Carlos Head of Global Research and Investment Strategy. And in this podcast, I share our observations and opinions on the economic landscape, as well as insights from research being conducted by our team here at Carlisle. Today, I'll share my five questions for 2024 to coincide with my annual report that discusses the year ahead. I examine five key macro developments from last year and inquire about the potential implications for the year ahead. This episode was recorded on January 3rd, 2024, and the discussion reflects composite portfolio data and analysis of recent government reports that are accurate as of that date. So the first question we ask in the report, what if the Fed doesn't cut rates in March? And this, of course, is in reference to the run-up in asset prices over the last two months of 2023 that was predicated in large part on the apparent Fed pivot in its policy orientation away from rate hikes towards rate cuts. Now, when our co-founder at Carlisle, Bill Conway, hears about potential changes in the base rates, he has three questions of his own. First, when? Second, how many? And third, why? Now, if you look at SOFR futures, these rate cuts are supposed to arrive very soon, by March. How many? Six were priced in the SOFR curve as of year-end 2023. But the most important question of why is actually the, the most encouraging for markets because it's supposed to be really just the result of welcome disinflation. Because at the same time these aggressive rate cuts are priced into markets, there's broad expectations for 1.5% GDP growth, 11% increase in corporate earnings. So this is supposed to be rate cuts coming in a very aggressive fashion in an otherwise benign economic environment. And so, you know, these are certainly not mutually exclusive outcomes, but aggressive rate cuts in the context of an otherwise healthy economy are not things that generally one would expect to arrive at the same time. And the first test of this basic market outlook, I think, is going to come in March to see if the Fed actually follows through on these market expectations. Our second question, has the market value of office space been transferred to residential real estate? Here we start with a proposition, and that's that the market value of commercial real estate is a function of the market value of the economic activity that occurs on premises. If you take this approach, you realize that the value of office structures in the United States are predicated on the economic activity generated by the office consuming sectors. Now we know that that economic activity is still occurring, $10 trillion in annual revenue for office consuming sectors in 2023, up about 6% from the prior year. But we also know that a lot less of that activity is occurring in the office. At the end of 2023, average office attendance in the United States was only half of pre-pandemic levels. We know that people spend less time at the office when they do go. We also know that more job postings advertise remote or hybrid work. So when you add all that up, I think of course it's led to some concern about the value of office, the decline in floor space demand going forward when existing office leases expire. But I don't think we've appreciated the extent to which this value may have been transferred to the residential real estate simply because that's where more of the economic activity is occurring today. If you just think about two fewer days commuting for the average worker, 
That could imply up to 15% upside for residential real estate values. Similarly, if you think about uh, decline in floor space demand going forward, any savings on rent is really likely to be partly realized by increased compensation from employees, again, putting upward pressure on residential real estate values with constant rent to income ratios. So the future is uncertain here. We'll see what happens. But I think the real world business continuity test of 2020 revealed that there's a lot of work traditionally associated with the office that can be done from home. And I don't suspect that lesson is going to go unlearned. Our third question, what are the market implications of the emergence of China's electric vehicle sector? In 2023, China overtook Japan as the world's top auto exporting economy. Much of this is tied to the rise of electric vehicles. Electric vehicles now account for 25% of those exports. Electric vehicles account for about 33% of domestic auto sales in China. And now over 50% of global EV sales involve Chinese brands. Electric vehicles are markedly different from internal combustion engine vehicles. First, there's an entirely different form of propulsion, of course. There's also about 60% fewer components and parts, different assembly processes, different materials, different value chains. In many ways, the growth of China's electric vehicle sector raises questions about the competitive dynamics in this market going forward, but also questions about the residual value of the physical capital stock and production networks of the traditional ICE vehicle manufacturers if we are living in a world that is very quickly going electric. We also ask, will the emergence of China's EV sector accelerate the fracture of global trade? In the years since the onset of the pandemic, China's trade in autos has swung from a $35 billion deficit to a $30 billion surplus. This has not gone unnoticed by China's trading partners, particularly the European Union, because it's part of a broader shift in bilateral trade relations. In the years since the pandemic, China's exports to Europe have increased by 70%. The European Union's deficit with China has doubled to over 400 billion euros. Chinese firms have increasingly focused on Europe because the US market has become so inhospitable to them. So as a result, Europe absorbs one third of China's EV exports, but also 60% of China's exports of solar modules. And we've also seen really dramatic growth in European imports of Chinese batteries and broader storage technology. So this is really a fascinating time because what we're observing is the simultaneous intersection of geopolitical rivalry, energy transition, and full-scale industrial transformation. And I think this, more than any other, will be the trend to watch most closely in 2024. Our final question, how will post-QE era influence AI business models? First, we expect to see significant productivity gains in 2024 as businesses operating across the economy embrace generative AI. We also wonder to what extent will the change in Federal Reserve policy also have to change the business models of the startups operating in the AI space? If you go back to the prior decade, 
the Fed's decision to launch QE was really intended to take safe securities off of the market, push investors' portfolios into more risk. As a result, many investors became more focused on growth, became more willing to fund losses of companies that were showing the ability to scale their businesses and customer bases very rapidly. Over the last two years, as policy has changed, there's been much greater reluctance for investors to fund precisely these businesses at the later stages of their life cycle. So the question I think going forward is to what extent will AI firms, startups, growing businesses face a discipline to actually turn profitable much sooner in their life than their predecessors in e-commerce, fintech, or cloud computing were forced to a decade previously. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to download the report, Five Questions for 2024, via carlisle.com or social media. On behalf of the team here at Carlisle, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us again for our next episode of Insights and Indicators.